Good morning, everybody. Good to see everyone. Has everybody got a seat? There's a couple here. Yeah, good. All right, we're uh, quickly approaching uh, Good Friday and Easter. I hope you're excited about that. Um, we're in this season called Lent. Lent is the Latin word for spring. It's coming. <laughs> I mean, it, it is a wonderful day yesterday. It's going to be a wonderful day today. Um, and historically, the church has kind of had a calendar where 40 days leading up to Good Friday, they call that Lent. Um, it's time for Christians to prepare their heart. And at Crossroads, we, I mean, we want to preach Good Friday and Easter every Sunday. We, I have to think about that every day, actually. That's, that's the gospel to me, and I need to preach that gospel to my heart every single day, um, or I just become a pretty selfish, pathetic human being. Um, but uh, it's also good that the church has set aside a time in the year when we can just really, really go for it in this regard. And as we get closer, um, we're going to call our church to something we haven't done in a while, 24-7 prayer for three days, four days, leading up to Easter, starting Wednesday night. Uh, Wednesday night is something we do once a month. People from this church pack the upper room, and we just, we pray. Uh, we pray for our city. We, we pray for God's people all over the world. We pray for the needs within our own body. Um, so we're calling you to that. And then from there, the baton will be given uh, to the first person who will kind of start that 24-7 unbroken prayer. Um, I don't know how often you read our core values, but we actually have core values at this church. Um, one of our core values is prayer. And uh, this, is, this is what our core value says. Probably can't see it if you have eyes like me, but I'll read it for you. We value prayer because we believe that only God can accomplish what he calls us to do and that God should receive the glory. For this reason, we believe the church should be committed. Boy, that guy really likes what I'm saying, doesn't he? <laughs> for this reason, we believe the church should be committed to night and day prayer for the world, the coming of the kingdom, a deeper manifestation of God. Because without prayer and dependence on God, and that is a definition of prayer. Prayer is dependence on God. For all things, we are destined to either fail or become conceited in our success. So go to our website and um, sign up for a slot. Uh, it, it'll walk you through. It'll be pretty easy to do. Okay, we're also going through the I am statements in John's gospel, all these times where uh, Jesus says, I am. I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. Um, I am the true vine. Uh, today, we're going to look at two texts. We're going to pick up on the one we were in two weeks ago, I am the good shepherd. That's not our main text. Our main text will be John 18. Let's start in John 10. If you have a Bible like mine, it's on page 759. Uh, let's stand for the reading of God's word. I'm going to begin reading at verse 14, where Jesus says, I am, 
Ego a me, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. That knowledge is that intimate knowledge. I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them in also. And what sheep are those? (laughs) Us right now. He has us in mind as he's saying this. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me, this is such a profound statement, is that I lay my life down only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command I too received from my father. And then turn to John 18. When Jesus had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and they crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side there was an olive grove and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who had betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers. Some of your uh, texts say a, a Roman cohort, which is the actual translation. We'll talk about that. And some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back. (laughs) They drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, you guys ready yet? <laughs> Get up and stand. I mean, I, I, just this crazy scene. I'm not talking to you. I'm about these soldiers here. <laughs> yeah. He asked them, him, them again, who is it that you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you, I am he, Jesus answered. If you were looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of the sheep that you gave me. And then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. I love the detail of the Bible. It just tells us it's true. It really happened. There's a guy named Malchus who got his ear cut off. Anyway, um, Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the, the cup the Father has given me? And then the detachments of soldiers with the commanders and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas, this is a very important detail, was the one who advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. This is God's word. You can be seated. So 
So let's just start off again with where we were two weeks ago when Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. Um, if you don't know this, and it, by the time of the first century, Jesus' time, a shepherd in that time was socially at the very bottom. We're talking in terms of status, in terms of income. I mean, this is at a time when Greece and Rome are planning these modern cities all over that part of the world, cities that have theaters, stadiums, shopping malls, spas, Starbucks, McDonald's. Um, I mean, every convenience you can think about, running water. And, and so Roman urban life was something that was trending way up. It was something that a lot of people were seeking. And being a shepherd was really the complete opposite of this trend. Their lifestyle was earthy, it was rural, it was considered backwards and backwoods, outdated. Um, almost what we would say today about a hillbilly, um, that's what a shepherd was in that day. And yet Jesus still takes this image of shepherd and says, that's what I am, the good shepherd. And again, I want to put that picture before us. Uh, it, 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 for me, is such a profound picture because it speaks so much to who we are as God's people. We're sheep. And the shepherd just screams at us so much of, of who God is. In Psalm 78, it says, but God brought his people out like a flock. Out of where? Out of Egypt. He led them like sheep to the desert. They didn't just wander aimlessly for 40 years. For 40 years, this is what it was. It was God, the good shepherd, leading them, going before them, it says he guided them safely so that they were unafraid. And, and, and the Bible describes this, this shepherd that, that guides them, that leads them those 40 years as a pillar of cloud by day and, and, and fire by night. And it's, it's a cloud that, that our text says went before them. But in the Hebrew, it, it, it's not the word went. <laughs> it walked. It walked, and sometimes it ran to protect them. And again, I'm not going to go down this rabbit trail too long, but Jesus isn't just someone who is in our New Testament. Christ is all over the Bible. And when you read Exodus and you read Deuteronomy, you, you see that the deeper that, that Christ, as their good shepherd, uh, led them in the desert, the more intense was their experience of God so that every single day the good shepherd is providing manna from the sky, water from rocks. Um, they didn't even have to worry about the day because their shepherd was everything. That's why when Jesus shows up in the New Testament and says, I am the good shepherd, this is not a new idea of of course he's the good shepherd. This is what Christ has already been to his people and what Christ promises always to be right now to his people. 
that right there. Now, what's amazing is that Jesus is going to push this image even further. He's not only going to say he's the good shepherd, but because he's so, not just knows the sheep, knows each sheep by name, knows each need of each sheep, he so wants to identify with the sheep that he becomes a sheep. That's where the whole story is going. God didn't just become a shepherd. God became a shepherd, a shepherd who became a sheep. And not just a sheep, but a lamb that was slaughtered. And that's the what. But what's the why behind that what? Christians too often just know what, but we don't know the why. Why? Why did that happen? Why did God do that? And that's why I want to move to our second text, to John chapter 18. Now, the context of John chapter 18 is Jesus has just gotten finished with celebrating Passover with his disciples. And if you remember, Passover is their July 4. It's their Independence Day because it celebrates when God liberates his people from being slaves in Egypt. And then when you stop and think about uh, how God liberated them, um, it was really through the blood of a lamb. Um, as God unleashed his, this judgment day on Egypt, God said each family must take a lamb. That lamb is to be slaughtered so it can be eaten, but the blood is to be collected and it's to be painted on the doorposts um, of, of, of each of the houses because God says when my judgment comes down, um, when I see the blood of the lamb on that house, I'll pass over it. I won't judge that house. Now, to celebrate this day, God also gave instruction, and not just this day uh, when it first happened, but in all the years to come. When they celebrated Passover, God says, um, I want there to be one lamb for each family, and that lamb is to be slaughtered in the temple on the day of Passover. Okay, so Josephus says that during this time, 250,000 lambs were slaughtered for Passover. Within this 24-hour period at the temple. Okay, not only did that require incredible efficiency, I mean, just think assembly line where all 18,000 of those priests and Levites are, are, are working around the clock, but think about all the blood. And where did all that blood go? Because all the blood had to be drained from each lamb and it had to be collected um, and thrown on the altar and even Rome said, this, this is a health hazard. Well, what they did is they had these huge cisterns uh, on, on, at the top of the temple structure where they collected massive amounts of water and they would just flood the area where these lambs were sacrificed and then that water and blood would be channeled um, down out of the temple and down into the Kidron Valley. And Josephus tells us it formed a river in the Kidron Valley that flowed all the way to Bethlehem. 
Now, why do I say all this detail? Well, John 18, verse 1 says, when Jesus had finished praying, he left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. And every time I take a group and we walk into that Kidron Valley, I think about this. I, I don't usually highlight it, but I just think, what was in Jesus' mind when he knows why he came, what he's about to do, and having to cross over all of this blood and water. And then I think, is it coincidence? One, that he was killed on Passover. And two, John gives us the detail that what gushed out of Jesus' body as he hung on the cross was blood and water. Anyway, just something to think about. So he passes over the Kidron uh, to Gethsemane and he finds a place. There is the temple structure as it looks today. The Kidron Valley is on this side of that big square. That square is three football fields by five football fields. Um, and what you see in the middle today is Dome of the Rock, which is the third most uh, holy site for, for the Muslims. Uh, but in Jesus' day, that's where the temple was. And you can imagine now how they would get all that, uh, where that blood and water would go down into that Kidron Valley with Gethsemane being right in your bottom right corner. And let me have the next picture so I can bring you to that spot right there. It's Kidron Valley, looking up. So Jesus finds a place in what's called Gethsemane. Gethsemane is just an olive grove. Uh, the whole hillside of the Mount of Olives is olive trees. That's why it's called Mount of Olives. Um, and, and for a feast like this, it would have been packed with people. I mean, this is one huge camping out party where a million people descend upon Jerusalem. There's no holiday inns. They're just camping out. So literally, you have to picture Jesus and his disciples like literally stepping over people to find their place. And then once they find their place, John doesn't give us this detail, but the other gospels do. Jesus falls apart. And in agony, just for hours, prays to God, cries out to him. Now, John, being the last gospel written, I think what he's doing is he's filling in some of the details that the other gospels missed. So, he gives us more detail on who comes to arrest Jesus. And look at verse three. You have Judas, we know that. You have the religious leaders, both Pharisees and the priests. I mean, these groups of people don't like each other, even though they're Jews. But here's the shocker. Romans. Now you don't just have groups of people that don't like each other. Now you have groups of people that actually want to kill each other, yet they're all unified on this one cause of arresting Jesus so that they can kill him. And people always want to ask this question, who killed Jesus? Answer? Everyone. I mean, look at our text. You have religious and irreligious people. You have pagans, you have Jews. You have elites, you have commoners. You have white collar, you have blue collar soldiers. 
They're all coming with clubs and swords and weapons to arrest Jesus so they can beat him and then kill him. And I want us to have this picture in our mind because I think it embodies the propositions that we find in places like Romans 5 verse 10. It says, for if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? And the good news in that is how in Christ we have salvation, but we almost forget that before that we were enemies. God's enemies. Literally hostile towards God. At enmity with God. Romans 8 verse 7, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile towards God. It does not submit to God's word, nor can it do so. What Paul is saying here is that in our natural state, he describes that as in the flesh. In the flesh is Paul's way of saying, your selfish self, your self turned in on itself, stuck inside itself, is in this state that doesn't just disbelieve God or even resist God. Our selfish self hates God. That's what Paul's telling us. That's what the New Testament tells us. This is what John is showing us. And John is showing us people from all walks of life, all races, coming at Jesus with clubs and weapons. I know some of you are saying this right now. <laughs> that ain't me, bro. I might not get that excited about Jesus. I might not even believe in Jesus, but don't tell me that I hate Jesus. The Bible begs to differ. Until we have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, we are at hostility with God. And it doesn't just give us that fact, but it gives us the why behind that fact. The reason why we are uh, at enmity with God is it's this simple. Our selfish self doesn't want to be told what to do. We don't want to be told how to live because we insist on being our own masters. We insist on having control over our lives. That's why. I think one of the ways that, that the modern person arrests Jesus and, and, and leads Jesus away in change is when we fashion God in, into our image, when we uh, fashion God according to our likes and our likeness, when, when, when we kind of accept God on our terms, when we conform God to our wishes, to our desi desires, to fit nicely into our lives, the way we think about the world, the way our culture thinks about the world. We don't want a God who messes with us. We don't want a God who confronts us. 
We don't want a God who challenges us. How we live, how we think. What we want is a God who serves us, who serves our agenda, who makes our life better, a God that we can master, not a God who masters us. When I was younger, I was thinking about this this week. I don't know why this memory came back to me. Um, But when I was in sixth grade, I did arrest Jesus and put him in chains. I was, I had a good friend, Chad DeBoer. We loved to play one-on-one basketball. We both loved it. And he beat me, and he beat me, and he beat me again, and he beat me again. Now, this is going to reveal something about me that's actually quite pathetic, okay? Uh, But being highly, highly competitive, I walked away. And I said, God, I hate you. I hate you. I bet I said it 20 times. It scared me as I started to step away from it. Why did I hate him? Because I also had a vibrant prayer life with God. I did. Which shows I wasn't indifferent to him, was I? (laughs) I wanted God on my terms. I wanted God for me. I wanted God to be a God who would let me win one-on-one basketball. I know. It's pathetic. I said this thing to Libby, and she said, you're not going to say that. That's just awful. (laughs) (laughs) But here's the deal. We grow up, and we still do it with different things. What's your attitude towards God's word? I mean, think about what we, what we have in our hands. This is a book that God wrote. It's a book where God expresses his heart, his character, his likes, his dislikes, his ways. It's all here. And how many of us, when we read this, we're like, oh, I like that, and I love that God is like that, and I love that God does that, and I love that God says that, and I love that God says this is what we are to be. But how many also times does our heart say, I can't accept a God who does that. I can't accept a God who says this. I can't accept a God who says thou shalt not. You see what this reflects? There's enmity. There's hostility. We want a God who's going to conform to us, not a God who we conform to him. We want a God that we can control, that we can lead off in chains, who we're in charge of, so we can call the shots. And you know what, if, if, if this isn't enough proof to what the New Testament writers tell us about this hostility, think about God's ultimate revelation of himself. This little period of time where the word of God became flesh, a vulnerable human 
being. And in that short amount of time, people from every class, every race, didn't just disbelieve him, they rejected him, they hated him, they wanted to kill him. Because the human heart in its most natural state is at enmity with God. We have to know this. We see it in our text. Here they come at Jesus with clubs and weapons to bind him and to chain him so they can kill him. What about you right now? Do you see any of this enmity in your life? Do you submit to God? Do you submit to his thou shalt nots? Or are you always trying to get God to submit to you? Are you always telling God what God must be? Are you always forcing God in, in, into being what you want God to be? Or what about when God allows things, or not just even allows, but brings things in your life that hurt? Or when God takes things away or, or, or rips precious things away from you? Do you still love him? Do you still worship him? You still bow to him? I think it comes down to something so basic, so basic. Who is the real Lord of your life? Is it you or is it God? Who really sits on the throne, you or God? Now, in all of this, what is God's response to our hostility, our enmity? Well, let's look at Jesus' response in the text. Look at verses 3 to 5. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Here they come, all the hostility. And Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, what is it that you, who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with him. So you have this whole force that, that comes out to arrest Jesus, and the force is more than just the temple police, uh, some some uppity-up priests and, 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 and Pharisees, probably members of the Sanhedrin, but John also tells us uh, this Roman attachment. In the original language, it is a, an official term, an official Roman military term. It's a Roman cohort. Now, let me just tell you how, how, how the Roman army is, is broken down. Uh, ten cohorts make up a legion. There are a minimum of 5,500 soldiers in a legion. As many as 10,000. Let's just say 5,000, okay? How big is a cohort? Some of you guys are already sleeping. It's a minimum of 500 soldiers. 
under a commander. And so this whole posse, because of Judas, knows where Jesus is. They come to him. Jesus, knowing they're coming, initiates the whole thing, says, who do you guys want? They say Jesus of Nazareth, to which Jesus responds, I am he. And then what happens? They fall back and all fall to the ground. Now, the commentators don't even know what to do with this. I, I, one commentator says, well, you know, the Mount of Olives, it's, it, it's really steep. And, <laughs> and they're so stunned that Jesus said, I'm he, here I am. If you know anything about Rome, this is the most trained, sophisticated army the world has ever seen. And they don't mess around they're not like some, I mean, honestly, it's almost like a scene out of Monty Python, if you've ever watched that, you know? That's not, that's not the Roman army. And what is it that John wants us to see that causes these 500 soldiers to fall back and fall to the ground? It's when Jesus says, you're looking for me? I am he. But that's not what Jesus said. When he says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus responds with, ego, a me, I am. This is the same thing Jesus said to his disciples when they thought he was a ghost walking on water. And Jesus shouts out at them, do not be afraid. Ego, a me, I am. This is what Jesus says to the religious leaders at another feast when they're questioning him, who are you, where did you come from? And he simply says, before Abraham was, ego, a me, I am. And that time, they picked up stones to stone him because they knew exactly what Jesus was saying about himself in saying, ego, a me, I am. He was literally taking upon himself God's very Name. You could probably just do this with your Bible in your Old Testament. Every time you see the Lord in your Old Testament, let me show you what it looks like in Hebrew. Yod, because it goes this way, right to left. Yod, hey, vav. Every time you see the Lord in your Old Testament, that's what it is in Hebrew. Do you know what yod hey vav hey means? I am. I am is God's name. It's on every page almost in our Old Testament. By the time of Jesus, you weren't even allowed to say it. It was too holy to utter aloud. So they, they, they just said Adonai, which means Lord. But his name is yod heh vav which means I am. Now listen, at this point in the gospel story, we're going to see Jesus at his most vulnerable, so weak, 
He's going to be arrested. He's going to be tried. He's going to be beaten to a pulp. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be spit upon. He's going to be stripped naked. He's going to be nailed to a piece of wood in the most public place outside the city. We can't forget, though, who Jesus is. He is the Lord. The I am. The first time God's name, the Lord, yod heh vav heh is used is in Genesis when it says, the I am made the heavens and the earth. Think about that. Or how about this? Every time in the Old Testament when, when the Lord, when this great I am draws near and he makes his manifest presence known, there's, there's a Hebrew word that describes this. It's the word kavod. Kavod is a word that we translate as, as glory, but kavod literally means weight. And when God draws near and, and people encounter his raw presence, that weight, it almost kills them. I mean, Moses says to God, God, you've shown me so much, but I want to see your glory, your kavod. God says, Moses, it's going to kill you. It's going to crush you. Just a few places. Look, look, look in Deuteronomy 5, 24 through 26, when God's people God asked them to gather at Sinai, and God's glory comes down on the mountain. While the mountain was ablaze with fire, all the leaders of your tribes and your elders, God says, came to me, and you said, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his majesty, and we've heard his voice from the fire, and today we've seen that a person can live. They're blown away when God speaks to them. But then they said, but now, why should we die? This great fire will consume us and we will die if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer. Enough. Moses, you go up the mountain. Ezekiel uh, encounters, uh, is, is ushered into, into God's throne room. And he, this is what he describes. He says, and high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. Hmm, I wonder who he's talking about. And I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal as if full on fire, and that from there down, he looked like fire and brilliant light surrounding him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day so that the radiance around him, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell face down because I heard of the voice of the one speaking. Or how about this, next one. This is when Solomon dedicates the temple. The temple is the house, it's where God lives. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground. Or Isaiah, when he's ushered into the throne room of God, and all the angels are covering their faces and singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. 
And all Isaiah can do is fall to the ground and say, woe is me, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. So what is it that causes this Roman battalion to fall down? You know, Jesus, we know, came to the world to show us God. He came to reveal God's face. Jesus is literally putting flesh on God's name. Yet in doing so, he gave up his glory. But I love what this commentator says about this, Alexander McLaren. Listen to what he writes. He says, I am inclined to think that here for a mere moment there was a rending of the veil, just as Moses could not look upon God's face but only a glimpse at the back parts of God's glory. And as Isaiah, who through the smoke could only get a glimmer of his majesty, still said, woe is me, I am ruined. So here, one stray beam of manifest deity that shot through the crevice as it were, for an instant, was enough to devastate and prostrate with abject awe those armed men. It's like for just a moment, Jesus just flexes. I used to love it when my kids were, my boys were young and they used to love to wrestle with me, especially both at the same time. Uh, and they'd get rough. Uh, and I liked it that they got rough. Um, and sometimes I know they felt like they were kind of beating me. But then, you know, you just flex that muscle a little bit <laughs> just to let them know this is what you're dealing with. <laughs> I feel like that's what Jesus is doing here. He's sending a message to these Roman soldiers. As you guys are about to participate in my utter humiliation, you're going to witness my weakness. Know who I am. As you pin me to your Roman cross, your instrument of torture, your billboard to the world that says, we win, everybody else loses. Please, no, I'm not a helpless victim. I'm not a martyr. And all you religious elites, you didn't arrest me. You aren't the ones who tried me. You're not even the ones who killed me. I am the good shepherd. I lay my life down. I chose this arrest. I chose that beating. I chose to be stripped naked. I chose that cross. That's my plan, not your plan. And we sing songs like he could have called 10,000 angels, but he doesn't need 10,000 angels. This is ultimate power. This is the one who spoke the whole universe into existence. But from this moment until he says, it's finished. Think about the restraint that he showed. That's glory. 
That's the glory of God. And we get so casual with Jesus. Think of John who spent three years following him, being with him 24-7, 365. Yet when he sees Christ in all his glory in Romans, in Revelation 1, he says, all I could do is fall down like a dead man. One day, this gives me goosebumps to just think about. We're going to see him. We're going to behold him. We're going to look at him. He's going to look at us. And I spoke about the hostility that we have towards God, but what about God's wrath towards us? The Bible over and over and over again tells us God hates our hate. He's angry about our anger. He didn't make us to reject him, to be hostile towards him, to come at him with clubs and weapons so that we could use God and control God for our ends. God made us to love him with everything we have, to worship him and to bow our whole life to him. The Bible speaks of a judgment day when his perfect justice will be unleashed when all hate and hostility will finally be rectified. The prophets call this day the great day of the Lord. It's gonna be a day when God's wrath will be unleashed upon all evil. And that's what God's wrath is. God's wrath is his his opposition towards evil and injustice. And in one sense, our hearts, it longs for this. I mean, we want justice, we want the world to be made right. We want our lives to be made right. We want for all the hostility and the enmity and the hatred uh, to be dealt with. But then in another sense, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that this evil and hostility exists in our own hearts, in our own lives. And here's what we need to also know when we're talking about God's wrath, his anger. We need to know that his anger isn't like our anger. It's not a hot temper. It isn't selfish, protective, or cranky. It's righteous anger. It's controlled anger. Look at Jesus. But God's anger, his his wrath that he's going to unleash upon all evil, in the Old Testament, is depicted as this cup. Listen to some of these texts, Psalm 75, verse 8. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. Or how about Isaiah 51? Awake, awake, rise up, Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You who have drained it to its dregs, the goblet that makes people stagger. Or Jeremiah, this is what the Lord The God of Israel said to me, take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath. Make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. And when they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. It's not just in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. 
Revelation, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath, and they will be tormented with the burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. Look at what Jesus says. Simon Peter, who had a sword and drew it and struck the high priest's servants, cutting off his right ear, Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? The Father's cup is that cup. It's the cup of all God's wrath for all sin and evil. And in the garden, God takes that cup of his wrath and he places it before Jesus. And he says, son, will you drink this? This is the agony that Jesus is going through in Gethsemane that the other gospels tell us about as he prays for hours. It's all about the cup. Father, remove this cup. But he finally gets to the spot where he can say, not my will, but your will be done. You know, and, and, and we look at, at Jesus' suffering, and we, we, we think his greatest suffering is that scourge, those nails that are going to go into his hands and feet. That's, that's not the greatest torment and suffering that Jesus endures on the cross. It's the cup Because on the cross, God is absorbing all his anger for all sin into himself through Christ. And he's standing in our place. He's, he, he's taking our judgment day upon himself. All the judgment that we deserve, it all falls on Christ. And that too is in our text. The high priest Caiaphas doesn't even know what he's saying in verse 14, but when he says, he advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. One man standing in the place of all the people. That's what Good Friday is. It's Jesus standing in our place, taking our judgment day, drinking the cup that was ours to drink. And Jesus drank it. And if you know what this means, it'll change your life. Because first, it means our judgment day has already taken place 2,000 years ago at Calvary, which means we no longer have to live our life on trial. And there's all kinds of courts that, that, that judge us and but the ultimate court, the ultimate judge of the universe says to us, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Secondly, do you see how much it costs God to love us? He didn't just suffer for us. He didn't even just die for us. Jesus literally, he went to hell for us. And then when you ask why to that, it's simply because for some reason, he loves us that much. And this is why when I hear people say, you know, 
I'm not really into believing in a God who gets angry or a God who judges or these notions of sin and evil. I'm, I, I'm more into believing in a God of, of grace who loves everybody, accepts everyone. Do you see that this, this sentimental understanding of God, God will never change anyone? Come on, God's love is not a Hallmark card. It's not reduced to just something like love wins. What changes our hearts is when we understand fully, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And in light of that, like Isaiah, woe is me. I'm ruined. And then that the judge of the world came to the world and instead of smiting us, he did flex, but he didn't smite because he was the one smitten. That'll change your heart. It's in verse eight. Jesus says, take me, let them go free. And then verse nine, this happened so that the world, the word he had spoken of would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those sheep you have given me because the good shepherd became a sheep and stood in the place of the sheep so the sheep could be set free. And he drank the cup. And he took our judgment there. Which is why Paul says, how deep and wide and far is the love of God in Jesus Christ. This is why we can lay down our hostility, our enmity, needing to be in control, and why we can submit our lives to this God. Have you? Let's pray. God, this is far too good that anyone could ever make up. God, this is your story that before the foundations of the earth were laid, you, you knew it was going to play out this way. And you knew that you were going to be central to the whole story. And God, May we take our eyes off ourselves, and may your Holy Spirit come into our heart to open the eyes of our heart to see the Christ, who he is, what he has done, and why he did what he did, and for whom he did it. <laughs>